Well, hey, before we go, Lord, in prayer this morning, let me just welcome you all here. I know there's a lot of new faces here this morning, especially here, probably to hear the kids sing. So glad the lights didn't go off on them and just went off on Trevor uh, when he was up here. I'm glad I was sitting there like, man, I'm glad it didn't go out on me when I'm up here. Now, knock on wood, right? Um, but man, so glad to have you guys here this morning visiting, whether it's for your first, second time. Uh, let me introduce myself really quick. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Matt Hareen, lead pastor here. So uh, about 80% of the year, you're going to see me up here uh, preaching, but we just want to welcome me here and glad to have you here on this this Palm Sunday. And again, before we even go into the Lord in prayer this morning, I want to read a couple quotes from one of my favorite uh, preachers of old, Charles Spurgeon. He said, he who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. And he also said this once, he said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. As we go into this, this, this Palm Sunday, this this Passion Week leading to our Good Friday and Easter service next Sunday. We're going to begin on this coming Friday at 6 a.m., uh, a time of just praying together for God to move uh, on our Easter services next, next Sunday. And so I was just reminded of these, these quotes from Spurgeon this, this morning of the, 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 important, the importance and the significance of prayer. Again, he who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. What an amazing quote that is, and so true it is, that the one who humbles himself to pray and ask God to do great things has all things at his disposal because God is over all and in all and through all. And so I want to invite you, if you're a member of Calvary, to come pray with us for at least one hour from dawn to dusk next Friday. So beginning at 6 a.m. to all the way to ending at 6 p.m. You can pick any hour during those 12 hours to come here uh, in our upper fireside room and pray. Someone will be there leading uh, you through a time of just praying, reading through the, the, the crucifixion story, the resurrection story, praying for our service, all the things, all the aspects, the people that will be coming, people that will be listening, people that will be hearing maybe the gospel with them for the very first time, praying that God will work in their hearts to reveal uh, the glory of Jesus to them as their, their true need and Savior. And so, God, would you come and pray, guys, with us this coming Good Friday to pick an hour and pray as a church that heaven and earth would move uh, on that Easter Sunday. And so I want to invite you to do that. I invite you to come pray with us on Good Friday and then invite you back next Sunday, 10 a.m., as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we're leading into that and leading to that story, uh, even in Mark 7 this morning, we're going to see, as Trevor even talked about, the, the kingship of Christ, him as the true Messiah, the true Redeemer, the one who is a compassionate king come to save those who are lost. And so with that, would you go and pray with me this morning as we open up this text? God, would you help us to see your goodness, your glory in, in our text this morning? As we enter into this, this Passion Week, this week that, that ends with your death, but we know begins next week with your resurrection. God, this is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. It is upon which our entire faith rests, your resurrection. And so, Father, I pray that, that we as, as your people who have been redeemed, who have been saved by your grace and through no work of our own, would, would ask great things of you. God, that we would be actively engaged in, in the lives of those around us, showing them, sharing with them the goodness of who Christ is. God, that we would be a light in the midst of darkness. And so even today, as we open up uh, this final portion of Mark 7, as we see just this, this gentle interaction that Jesus has with this, 
this deaf and mute man. May we see the heart of Christ. May we see how it parallels even our own experience with you. And then from this, may we model the compassion, the love, and the, and the, and the grace and mercy of our King. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in our day and age, there, there's really uh, two types of stories that human beings are typically drawn to. Now, on one end of the spectrum, we're drawn to the, the scandalous stories, right? Like we, we are drawn to stories of corruption and greed, right? Stories of those who are in these positions maybe of power and authority being brought, brought down low, being found out. Uh, we are drawn to stories of, of justice. I, I mean, uh, we, we've witnessed this in, in years past. The whole country sometimes kind of shuts down over these major court cases and and we're glued to the TV wondering, okay, is this person going to be found guilty or innocent? When everybody brings their, their theories and their opinions to the, to the table, we're drawn to those moments. We're drawn to those stories of, of scandal. And news outlets prove that just by the reading of their own headlines, right? The more shocking, the, the better. But on the other end of the, the spectrum, we're, we're drawn, to, drawn to stories of, of compassion. We're, we're drawn to stories as well of, of kindness. We're drawn to stories of selflessness and, and stories of just genuine, we see genuine care for other human beings. There's just something about those stories that just warm our hearts and our, and our souls. And, and so why is that? Why is it that we're drawn to those types of stories as well? well I, I think there's something within us. When we, when we read of or we see those stories or hear of those stories, that there's something within us that wishes that we just actually see more of that. You know, we just saw more of that. There's something within us that kind of yearns for more of that, of compassion and kindness in our world today. Don't we just desire it? Isn't there something deep within the, the recesses of our, of our hearts and souls that longs for a day when everything will be as it should be? And those moments of compassion and kindness give us that, that glimpse into that. Like the, the, those classic fairy tales that we read when we were young ended, right? While all saying the same thing, that they all rode off into the sunset living happily ever after. And then we just want to get lost in those stories and remain there. We, we often just didn't want to go back to our, our life because that wasn't reality to us. We want to get lost in the happily ever after. Well, the, the world that we live in today is a far cry from the world that God designed it to be in Genesis 1 and 2. If you're familiar with the, the creation account in, in Genesis, what is the overarching phrase that God uses every time after he creates? He, he says it was, it's good. This is good, meaning as he said that phrase, that this is good, he's saying this is how it's meant to be. This is what it's supposed to be like. This is the way life is intended to be lived. It's good. It's in harmony with, with, with its creator. It's in life in harmony with one another. It's life in harmony with one another and with creation itself. But the, the curse of sin that, that human beings brought into the world through, through, through our, our rebellion and our rejection of God is the reason for the pain that we experience in the world today. But, but then also at the same time, the reason that we feel kind of this tension or, or this aching in our, in our souls when we, when we witness the brokenness in the world and within ourselves and then this desire and tension for things to be set right is because we're, we're image bearers of God. 
that we are created to, to live in this right and good relationship with our creator. And so there's this then deep desire that's been hardwired deep within our, our very DNA for us to see things right, which is why we're drawn to those stories of compassion. We're like, that's what it should be like. That's what the world should be. It's why our hearts yearn for that sense of, of warmth that comes when we read those stories of just love and compassion for other people. Because we're seeing and experiencing, even if it's for a, a brief moment, life as God designed it to be, it was good. And, and since Genesis 3, when sin entered into God's good world, through, through human rebellion and rejection of this creator, we, we've still been trying as, as hard as we can to get back to the garden. We're trying to get back to the garden, back to life as it was meant to be, but we're just unable to do that on our own. And so when Jesus stepped into this world and when he began his earthly ministry, he began it by saying, as recorded in Mark 1.15, he says this, that the the time is fulfilled. And he says, and the kingdom of God is at at hand. And so he says, repent, turn, believe this message, believe the gospel, believe in who I am. And so in essence, as he's, as he's launching his, his ministry, he's saying, I've come to do what you cannot do yourself. I've come to make you right with God. I've come to be what you cannot be yourself, which is sinless. I've, I've come to, to take your shame and your guilt and your sin and your brokenness upon myself. And I've come then to give you my righteousness. I've come to bring God's kingdom. It's at hand which is God's reign and it's his rule over God's people who are destined by God's grace to dwell with him forever. Life as it was intended to be. He says, I've come to show you what life is meant to be like under God's rule. So these stories, as we've tackled them throughout this Throughout this gospel, this gospel of Mark, as we've been studying, these stories, these narratives aren't placed there by Mark just to tell us nice things that Jesus did for people. They're not placed there just to teach us moral lessons, but they're placed there that, that through each miracle, within each teaching, within each parable that Jesus talks about, all the way to the cross, Mark is revealing Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who is sent from God to restore broken humanity to eternal life. He's revealing page by page, paragraph by paragraph, line by line, word by word, that Jesus is this servant king. He is the one who is the the perfect representation for humanity. A king who, as we see here, who is gentle and who is caring, who is filled with grace, who is filled with love. A king who feels our pain, feels the hurt that sin has brought into humanity. A king who is good. And isn't that what we need? We need a king, but we need a good king, one who can be trusted, one who's filled with love and grace and mercy. And so what we see from this interaction between Jesus and this this deaf and mute man is is that Jesus is a compassionate king who enters into our world, taking upon himself our sinfulness and brokenness, reversing the curse, revealing the kingdom, and giving us what we truly need. You see, in this story, which which really is a story that's part of the larger story of God's redemptive plan. We we are seeing here the heart of Jesus the King, the heart of Jesus the Redeemer, Jesus the promised Messiah. We see in this this, this short interaction, this, this parallel between this man's physical healing and even our own spiritual experience with Christ. 
Because the kingdom is, is continuing to expand today through the church. See, as, as we live, as we live by God's grace, under God's reign and under his rule, though imperfectly, even though as we do that, though, we're, we're revealing Jesus to the world and we're revealing to the world his goodness and we're revealing to the world his kindness and his compassion. Now, again, how are we doing that? Well, we, we reveal the goodness and the compassion of Jesus as we read in this, this story of this interaction between Jesus and this deaf man. We're revealing the goodness and the compassion of Jesus and how we live with one another and how we treat one another and how we serve one another and how we love one another and how we love our neighbor as ourself and how we show compassion as changed and transformed children of God. The way the church lives in and amongst ourselves is revealing the heart of Christ as we go into the world uh, continuing to show this is who Jesus is. He is good. He's good. You see, we find here Jesus in Mark 7 ministering primarily, primarily among Gentile regions. We tackled that um, uh, starting last week as well. Now, we're not sure exactly how long Jesus was in uh, this region here, but some suspect it was probably for several, uh, several months. And so uh, we saw last week Jesus in the city of Tyre. And from there, uh, we read this, this morning here that he, he begins to travel north. Uh, so he's traveling north up the coast of the Mediterranean, about 20 miles or so to the city of Sidon. And from there, he, he begins heading southeast, and he's ministering now in, in, in the regions of the Decapolis, it says. Now, which was a, this was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. It was an area that was consisting of about, uh, about 10 different cities. And so this entire journey from, from Tyre that we tackled last week to Sidon to where he is now on the eastern side of, of the Sea of Galilee was about 120 miles worth of, of walking or so. And so this was kind of this extended time of ministry um, among Gentile regions. Now, th this could have been for a couple of reasons. Maybe Jesus went to these areas because he was trying to avoid the Pharisees. Um, uh, the Pharisees in this, in this moment, they're, they're the ones who are after Jesus. They're trying, trying to uh, catch Jesus. They're trying to kill Jesus, come up with plans uh, to put him to death. And so this, this time of extended ministry here in these areas of, of, of the world could have been to just kind of avoid uh, the Pharisees, but, but could also be because Jesus just had this desire to see the kingdom of God expand to the Gentiles and to all nations. You know, Matthew records Jesus as in this area, but, but speaks really more, more generically, more generally. So it says that when Jesus was in this area, in Matthew's account, that it just says he's in the mountains uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and that, that, that these large crowds were, were coming to him, and they were bringing him the lame and the blind and the crippled, and they are bringing the mute, uh, and he was just healing them all. And, and so from Matthew's account, Jesus was performing uh, lots of miracles in this region. But it's Mark's gospel that just records, and it's the only gospel that records this interaction, this specific interaction and miracle. And though it's short, it's still, even in these few short verses, it's actually providing, Mark is providing a lot of detail here. And so what, what Mark is doing for his audience in this gospel, which was specifically his audience was, was a people that were, were Gentiles in Rome, he's revealing to them that, that Jesus is this Jewish Messiah, that Jesus is this compassionate king who's come to save them and to restore them as well. That the, that the kingdom of God 
consists of, of all those who turn in faith to Christ, that the true family of God is made up of people from all nations whose common denominator is Jesus Christ. And so, again, this, this miracle, this interaction, this heart of compassion we see in Jesus for this outsider, for this deaf and mute man, parallels even our own spiritual experience with Christ. Certainly, Gentile readers of this gospel that Mark wrote to would have seen this as well as, as they themselves saw themselves a lot of times as, as outsiders. But, but, but Mark's opening up the pages and saying, no, you're, you're no longer outsiders. You've been brought near to God as well. What you truly need, but not through any work of your own, you're, you're being brought near. You're being part, part of the family of God through the atoning and miraculous work of Christ. And so how do we see all of this in the text? Well, let's, let's just work through this text together this morning. Let's pick it up in verse, verse 32. And so Mark says that, the, that they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him, they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, let's stop there and just ask what, what's taking place here. What's taking place here literally in this, in this story? And, and, and then what's kind of the parallel? How do, we, how do we see this parallel in our own spiritual experience with Christ as well? So, so the first point that we see here in Mark 7 is that Jesus always gives us what we need, not necessarily what we, what we want or expect. So, so think about that for just a moment. Do human beings, if we're honest with ourselves, do we, do we usually pursue things we need or is the pursuit usually after things that we want? And, and even oftentimes, you might be thinking, well, no, I pursue things that we need, but are they really things that we truly need? And do you see even the difference between needs and, and, and wants? See, needs are more centered around uh, what human beings uh, need to, to, to flourish or to thrive, to be fruitful, to be able to serve others. And, and then wants kind of typically center around things that will maybe make our lives, maybe make them a little easier, a little bit more comfortable in the short term. Now, again, not necessarily even bad things, but I think as human beings, because we're not omnipotent, because we're not um, all-knowing, because we are mortal beings, we, we, we can only see kind of what's right in front of us. That's, that's about as far as we can see. Now, we can project, but we, we don't really know what tomorrow brings. We, we can have an idea but we don't really know what tomorrow brings. And even the things that we can see, even just in front of us, there's so many other variables in play that we can't see that, that there's even the things that are in front of us we don't fully even grasp, like, is this what we truly need? Because, we're, again, we're not omnipotent. We're not all-knowing. So that the things that we sometimes think are needs actually aren't really what we truly need or what we truly, what, what truly best for us. And so think of it like, like this. Like if, if, if we placed a child up here and we, if we placed pounds of candy before a young child, they, they would see that. Their eyes would look upon those, the, that massive uh, pile of candy and they would think this is an amazing gift given to them to eat right then and right there. Now they would believe with their, with their young and immature minds that they need that candy. Right? They would believe that, no, I need this. I need this candy. And for a while, as, as the child would be eating this candy, they would be very comfortable. They'd be very happy. They would be very content as they eat piece after piece after piece. But as adults, we would look at that, or as, as parents, or even as just mature adults, we look at that. And we have at least a better picture 
of, of what's best for them. Now, now, we would understand that that child, yes, you could eat all that right now. And we understand that as you're eating this, yeah, you're really happy right now. But in, a, in, in just a little while, you're not going to be happy. In just a little while, like tonight, you're not going to be happy as you're sick, as your stomach is in pain, asking, why did you do this? Right? As, as parents, as adults, we'll look at that and say, you're going to regret that decision later. It's not what you actually need. Now, again, in a child's mind, it would be like, it's exactly what I need. It's exactly what I need right now. Now, again, we may perceive ourselves to be mature people, and when we compare ourselves to others, that, that can absolutely be correct. But, but when compared to an omnipotent, omniscient God, we're, we're children really incapable of knowing what our own needs truly are. And so in this story, what we're seeing here is, 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 is friends of this deaf man bringing him to Jesus. And it says in verse 32, right, they're begging Jesus to lay his hands on him. Now, they're persistent. They're persistent here. Now, we see this type of persistence often throughout the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we saw it in Mark 2 when, when friends of a paralyzed man uh, tear open uh, the roof of a home to get their friend to, to Jesus for healing. We, we saw last week the persistence of a, in, in this remarkable faith of a, of a woman trying to get to Jesus for the sake of her daughter who is possessed by, by a demon. Throughout the gospel, large, large crowds follow Jesus kind of everywhere he goes, and they're persistent. They, they come to Jesus with all these tangible, but so often these, these temporal needs in their lives that they want Jesus to fix. And in all of these situations, Jesus, uh, as he interacts with them, he does so much more does so much more than what the people expect or even what they ask for. So in, in Mark 2, all right, when, when, when these people bring this paralyzed man to Jesus and ask for his healing, he doesn't just heal the paralyzed man, he forgives his sins. Uh, in, in Mark 7, what we read last week, he doesn't just cast a demon out of this woman's daughter, he, he then commends her faith. Uh, with the crowds that are continually pressing around Jesus and, and are only really always wanting their, their more temporary or earthly once met, he, he always is calling them to so much more. He's calling them to this, this eternal life that's found in him. And, and that's what's about to happen here even in this story, that, that these friends are bringing this man to Jesus. And, and if you notice as you read it, they're not bringing him to Jesus for healing. Nowhere in the text does it say that they're wanting this Jesus to heal their friend. Notice they don't ask for it. They actually ask Jesus to lay his hand on the man. Now, now that, that ask was, was typical in that day of asking a, a, a religious leader or, or a rabbi to, to, to bless this person. And, and so they're bringing this, this man to Jesus just for a, a, a blessing. Would you just bless this man in his affliction? And, and so these friends really, and not to put these friends down at all, but, but again, it shows, again, even what we often perceive as our greatest needs usually, usually terminate even on temporary things. As Jesus is about to pull this man in, and he's about to give this man so much more than what anyone expected. And isn't that true of what Jesus has done in, in your life? If you're a follower of Christ, isn't that true of what Jesus has done for you? Could not story after story after story be told in here today? of God's abundant grace, overwhelming mercy, his abundant compassion in your life. Could not story after story be told in here of how God delivered beyond what you even expected in your own life? 
Could not testimony after testimony be shared in here today of, of so many who have walked through and endured suffering? And you can look back on it and say, but through it all, God was so good to me. He was so good to me. And, and I know this because I've heard so many stories of, of many in this room. See, listen, following Jesus doesn't mean you'll never suffer. But, but following Jesus means that, that through suffering, he will provide. He'll give grace. He'll give peace. He'll give what you truly need. He'll provide above and beyond what you could ever even expect. Again, he'll give you exactly what you need to endure, to persevere, which is his presence, his strength, the spirit of God. But, but let's keep working through this, this text this morning. Look at just the very first part of verse 33. It says that he, he took him aside from the crowd privately. Let's just stop there. And let's talk about this. And ask lots of questions when you read the scriptures. Ask lots of questions. So ask this question. Why did Jesus take this man away privately? Why, why get this man away from the crowds? I, I think it's here that you begin to see the heart of Jesus being revealed. And so, so what is his heart? What's, what's the parallel even here in our own spiritual experience with Christ? And it's this point here, secondly, that Jesus understands our pain and has compassion. He understands our pain and he has compassion. I, I think there's a few reasons why Jesus took this man um, aside. And, and each of those reasons, I, I believe, reveals his heart of compassion. And so again, be in this story. So here was a man who had most likely been, been ostracized for the majority of his life, or forever long, that he was deaf and mute. I don't believe he was born deaf. I don't believe he was born mute. But I believe whatever point, whatever, it ha- whatever it happened, whenever he was afflicted with a disease, or whatever that caused this deafness in him, and this inability to speak or communicate clearly, from that point forward, this, this man was most likely kind of on the outskirts, kind of ostracized. So, so not only was, was he deaf, and unable to hear what, what people were saying to him. But he also, as Mark says, had the speech impediment, which made it very difficult for him to communicate with other people. So just think again the frustration that this man had. That I, just, I can't hear what people are saying, and I can't communicate what I'm thinking. And so here you have a, a human being, an image bearer of God, designed for relationships, designed for community with others. And he's unable to truly cross over that, that obstacle to belong because of this this affliction. And so here was a man most likely used to being alone, most likely used to being kind of overlooked, most, most likely used to just feeling like he's not worth the trouble. And so Jesus takes him, and think about this, Jesus spends one-on-one time with him. I mean, how amazing, how amazing that must have been for this man to get one-on-one time with the God of the universe, right? To look in his eyes and have his eyes look right back into his and say, he, he, I have his attention. Like Jesus looked in this man's eyes and, and though there were crowds all around Jesus vying for his attention, you have Jesus pulling this man aside and saying, I'm gonna give you all my attention. It's on you. I, I think Jesus took this man aside as well to, to connect with him. He was showing he was showing this hurting individual that he's seen, right? Like, I see you, right? Like, you're known. You're not lost. You're not forgotten. Like, you are loved. I mean, just this, this intimate moment that Jesus was sharing with this, this, this marginalized individual. I mean, there's so much parallel that we can draw on in our own lives. I mean, have you ever 
If you really meditate on the truth that, that not only does, does Jesus love the world, right? So John 3.16, God so loved the world. I think we, we, we understand that. Like, yes, God loves the world. And I think we, we grasp and understand that, yes, and Jesus loves the church. He loves the bride of Christ. I think we grasp those, those kind of broad, uh, those broad concepts and truths. But have you ever meditated on, on this truth as well, that he loves you? Like, insert your name. Like, he knows you by name. That, that he knows, that he cares for you. Not broadly, not generically, yes, but, but also individually. He cares for you, that he empathizes with you, and he empathizes with your, your suffering to such a degree that he felt pain himself, that he himself suffered. That, that Jesus knows what it feels like to suffer, and he cares for you. And, and through his death and through his resurrection that he's provided in this way for, for you to be set free, Meaning that there's coming a day when all that is wrong with the world will come undone. That, that all that's wrong with the world will be restored. That's what we see the author of Hebrews say. In Hebrews 4, the, the author says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus understands your pain. Jesus understands your suffering. He knows you and his heart is one filled with compassion for you. And like Jesus, then we should also model this kind of compassion, this, this love for others, especially, I would say this, especially to the marginalized, especially to those who are or, or more, the, more the outcasts, that especially to those who are poor and, and oppressed. In doing so, we're modeling the heart of Christ and revealing the kingdom. Let's finish this out, though, in verses 33 to 35. Look, look at the last part of 33. It says that, that he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So in what way here are we seeing the heart and compassion of Jesus and what he does? Well, this final point is that we see Jesus entering into our world and taking our brokenness upon himself. At first glance, when you read through this, anybody think, like, that's odd. Like, what Jesus just did, that's weird. But again, ask questions. Okay, why is he doing this? Jesus does everything intentionally, does everything with purpose. So why, why did Jesus put his fingers into this man's ears? Uh, why is Jesus uh, spitting and, and touching this man's tongue? Why is Jesus in looking up to heaven? Again, Mark's giving us a lot of detail of what's taking place here. And it's honestly, I think the answer to the, the why isn't as maybe complex or as ritualistic as maybe we might think it is. I, I don't think Jesus is necessarily performing this, this ritual here with this man. I, quite simply, I believe Jesus is communicating with this man in the only way that he could understand. I, I believe Jesus is using a form of sign language. He's talking with them. But, but see, in this, in this moment here, Jesus took this man aside, took him away from the crowds, away from the distraction so he could minister to this individual one-on-one. -on -one. So again, this man's deaf. This man is unable to communicate clearly. Uh, this man most likely uh, isn't totally sure even what's going on. All right, His friends are, are kind of dragging him, bringing him, like, where are we going? He doesn't know. He can't communicate what's going on. He can't hear what they're saying to him. And so they, they bring him before Jesus. But again, for what, what purpose 
right? He might not know fully what is going on or who even Jesus truly is. He's probably, there's probably confusion here in this individual's mind, probably some anxiousness, probably a little bit of fear, like what's, what's happening? And, and so Jesus here is, I, I believe, just calming him, looking him in the eyes and saying, it's okay, right? Speaking to him in a way that he could understand. Maybe this man didn't know why his friends were dragging him before Jesus, or, or, or he didn't know, and it was just to receive a blessing. And so now it's like, okay, why am I being drugged over here? What did I do? Am I in trouble? Like, again, think through what this is going on in this individual's mind. But Jesus, again, is just going to do so much more to this individual. He's telling him here what he's about to do for him. And so when Jesus puts his fingers into his ear, again, picture that. He's putting his fingers in this man's ears, and, and he's removing them. And, he's, and, and when he's doing that, he's saying, I'm about to remove the blockage in your hearing. Right? I'm about to remove the blockage in your hearing. When, when Jesus spit and he touched the man's tongue, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to remove the blockage that's in your mouth. When, when Jesus looked up to heaven, it meant, listen, this is God who's going to do this for you. This isn't a magic trick Right? This is going to be God of the universe who's doing this for you. See, Jesus entered into this man's world and healed him and restored him. But notice one other thing, one other detail that Mark mentions that Jesus does before he speaks. Mark says that he, Jesus sighed. The sighing, this word here, literally means to groan deeply with, with, with discomfort. And so again, why, why this groan? Why is Jesus groaning? How was Jesus in discomfort here? Jesus wasn't deaf. Jesus didn't have a a speech impediment like this man did. So what's this deep groan of pain, a sigh here? I believe it's again because Jesus is identifying. He's seeing the hurt. He was feeling the weight and the curse of sin in this world. And he's seeing and feeling, he's, he's seeing the damage that's doing to God's creation. This is not the way it was meant to be. We see this aching and groaning in Jesus in several other spots in Scripture. And in Luke 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Weeps over Jerusalem. That Jesus loved the Jewish people, but they, they rejected him. And so you see him weeping, groaning over the city, over the people. We see Jesus weep in John 11 at the death of his friend Lazarus. Even though, if you know the story in John 11, you know that just in a few moments, Jesus is going to restore Lazarus back to life. He's going to bring him back from the dead. So why weep? Why, why feel that pain in that moment? Jesus knows, I'm about to see Lazarus again. Well, again, because I think he's, he's feeling the weight and the curse of sin over God's good world. He's looking at death and Lazarus and saying, this was not how it's supposed to be. This is not part of God's good design for creation. And so we see Jesus groaning deeply in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was arrested, on the night that he was crucified. He goes to that garden and he, he, he groans and he sighs and he, he prays with such fervor that, that, that drops of blood come down from him. such anguish over what he's about to enter into because it's in the garden that Jesus is feeling a full weight of what he must do to ransom and redeem humanity back to God. He's feeling the weight of what must be done to reverse the curse. You see, Jesus entered into our world. God became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14 says. In, in Philippians 2.7, the Apostle Paul says that he was born in the likeness of men. Right? Jesus 
went to the cross to bear the full weight of our sin, becoming the punishment for our betrayal and our rejection of God so that through faith in him, we would become his righteousness. Meaning this, that we would be made right. That, that through Christ, we're justified. We're declared right before God through his work on the cross, that we would be restored, that we would be reconciled with our God. This is the king of God being revealed. This is what it looks like. This is what Jesus' mission is all about. And so just when Jesus said to this, this deaf man, he said, Ephesus, the very first words that this man had heard in probably years that, that pierced his deafness, and he heard these words, be opened. And immediately his ears were open. He heard, and he was set free from the bondage of deafness. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said the words, it is finished, and it was. See, no more sacrifice was needed to atone for our sin. Jesus was the final sacrifice. He was the final payment for the debt of our sin that stood against us, and that through faith in him, we've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. Do you believe this? You see, this story here in Mark 7 ends with this really this profound theological proclamation. And it's revealing even in their statement of, of, of Jesus, the deity of Christ. You see in verse 37, it says that they were astonished beyond measure. Again, that's where I draw upon that. They weren't expecting healing. They weren't expecting a miracle. They were astonished at what they had just witnessed. They came to him wanting a blessing and they got healing. They got a miracle. And so they're astonished beyond measure and they began to proclaim he, he does all things well. He has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You see, Jesus does all things well, far beyond what we can even fathom. The people here didn't grasp what had just taken place before their very eyes. And even with that, they couldn't contain then their excitement and praise, even though the very one who had just performed this miracle was charging them to remain quiet. They could not help it. They continued to proclaim, he does all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You see, this proclamation, like I said, has deep theological significance. It, it, should, it should point us back to Genesis 1 and 2. When God created, what did he do? He declared all things to be good. That God in his creation of his good world did all things well. And so as they proclaim that Jesus is even making the deaf hear and the mute speak, they're, they're agreeing with that statement right there with the prophet Isaiah who spoke centuries before God's Messiah would come, that, that, that this Messiah would do miraculous works of restoration. We've seen all of them in the Gospel of Mark. See, it was Isaiah who said in Isaiah 35, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. We'll see that in Mark 8. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. We just read that here. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. We saw that in Mark 2. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We're seeing that here in Mark 7. You see, Jesus is, as Mark so brilliantly is revealing in his gospel, the promised redeemer of mankind. There's no escaping that. He is the one who does all things well, and he is the one who can, can bring and make sense and purpose to your life. He's the only one who can restore you and reconcile you back with God the Father. He is a mighty, majestic, and amazing king, but at the same time we see in his interaction here that he is also compassionate, gentle, kind. That he's filled with grace. He's filled with mercy. He's filled, overflowing with love for you. 
And so rest in his love. Drink deeply of his grace. Be imitators of his kindness, of his compassion, especially to the outcasts, to the poor, to the hurting, to the marginalized, to the oppressed. Because as we do so, we are thus revealing the kingdom of God in the heart of Christ. And then like this crowd, then go and spread his fame and glory among the nations. He has done all things well. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning thanking you that you are a a God who has done all things well. We thank you that, that salvation is not something that we earn. For if that were the case, we would be lost indefinitely, lost forever. And so, God, we thank you that in your, in your perfect life, you did all things well, that you were the, the truly sinless Son of God, the perfect representation of humanity, what we needed, that you were the, the perfect sacrifice, that your death was the perfect death for, for, for lost mankind, that your resurrection is the perfect resurrection, which verifies that the payment you made on the cross is good. And so, God, we thank you that you have done all things well. So, God, may we, may we rest in that. May we rest in your grace, rest in your love for us. But at the same time, you've called us to be imitators of your love and your compassion. That like Jesus, though we will do so imperfectly, we are to go and love and care and serve, both in how we love and serve the church and then how we are sent from this place to love and serve our neighbors. And so, God, I pray that the church, this church here, would reveal continually the kingdom of God what it is to live under the reign and rule of a good God. We thank you for your love and your heart and your compassion for this, this man here in this, this story in Mark 7. We thank you that you didn't just walk on by, that you didn't treat him like, like some of the others probably treated him. I know how guilty I am of that. We thank you that you see us, that you know us, that you care for us. And so may we be encouraged in that truth today and then go and share it and proclaim it. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. Let's take a moment here to just, to, to just meditate upon these truths, the heart of Jesus, that he is both majestic and mighty. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. At the same time, though, the adjectives that describe him is that he is good, he's loving, he's kind, he's compassionate. And so we want to we rest in those truths of who Jesus reveals himself to be. And so think about that, meditate upon that, and then, then may I just encourage you as, as believers, we're going to be sent here in just a few moments. I want to encourage you as you're sent that we are sent to go into a world that, that lives in a counter-kingdom, a counter-world, a counter-culture, right, from what God has called us to live. And so the way in which we love and serve and care for one another is revealing the heart of Christ. It's not drawing attention to us and how good we are and how we love. It's, it's saying, this is who God is. This is what he's doing in my heart. Come and be a part of this. It's the invitation to a world in need. And so that's why we're sent. That's why we go. So we look to Jesus, thank Christ that he is the perfect representation, and then we go and do likewise, calling people to rest and look to Jesus.